Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer Jennifer Style, whose latest book, Exile Music, is a historical novel written from the perspective of a young Jewish girl, Orly, whose parents are musicians in Vienna. They flee Austria in the 1930s for La Paz, Bolivia, a country that offers the family refuge as the Nazis rise up in Europe. Exile Music follows Jennifer's two previous books, a memoir called The Woman Who Fell From The Sky, an American's adventure in the oldest city on earth, on her experience as a journalist in Yemen, and The Ambassador's Wife, a novel about a hostage crisis. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you, Michelle. I'm delighted to be here. In your latest book, Exile Music, there's a recurring theme. And here's an example of it. When a teacher sets Orly and her classmates a writing exercise, the teacher says, think of two people or objects or ideas or places that have nothing in common. Write them down now. Find a way to connect those two things and write that connection. What is between those things? What fills that space? And that theme, Jennifer, emerges again and again in your novel, the seemingly incompatible coming together. How does that speak to you in your life? Oh, it speaks to me personally for a lot of reasons. I also think it speaks more broadly to almost any immigrant experience in that you're always trying to connect your life where you came from and who you were in that place and your life where you have either been forced to move or chosen to move and and how you can reconcile that version of you in the old country and the version of you in the new country. My life is one of constant movement, uh, as, as you know, I think. And I my husband works for the foreign office, the British foreign office, and his job requires us to switch countries every three to four years which I find the most fantastic opportunity to learn more about the world and learn new ways of thinking and new languages and new perspectives on my own assumptions about the world. And I feel that I'm always trying every new country. There's, there are things that remind me of the previous country, even if they have nothing in common, really. There are things in Uzbekistan that remind me of Bolivia, for example. These are very different countries. Um, but it's my way of wanting to connect them and wanting to create some continuity of my experience. Does that make any sense? It does, it really does. I, I wonder what they are then today, because you're in London right now. What, what might, might be these surprising, maybe conflicting connections that you feel in the world that you inhabit now? That is a very good question. London has been the place that we have returned to in between postings. And London has, in the years that I have been with my husband, has been the place we find most difficult to live. I love London. I, I, it's an incredible city, but it's also quite challenging from a financial perspective. And also for me, uh, from a social perspective and from a sense of community and belonging perspective. So whenever we're back in London, suddenly both Tim and I find ourselves working 
eight days a week to try to make ends meet. And when I'm working all the time, I don't really have time to form community and find community and reach out to friends who I know are here. And so I, I'm often not able to make the personal connections that allow me to feel like I'm part of a city. And I feel that often in London, I rather than a resident, I'm an observer, even though I feel quite at home in London in a way. I, you know, I know how all the public transport works. I know all the buses and all the, all the tube stations, and I know how to walk from one end of the city to the other. But at the same time, you know, when I'm walking around Hampstead Heath and I see these clusters of friends walking together to the bathing ponds, I think, look at that wonderful community and these people who get up every morning to dive into this glacial water and then start their day. And, and I'm outside of that. And, and I, I'm never permanent here. And I, I feel often that when people find out that I'm not permanent here, they perhaps are less willing to invest energy in a relationship with me because I'm going to be leaving. And that's understandable. But from my perspective, given that I'm never anywhere for very long, I basically want to form relationships with everyone I meet. I want to form relationships with the checkout people at Tesco. I want to form relationships with, you know, the guy who delivers parcels to our doorstep. I, everyone. I just, I want to, you know, I'm a talker and I lived for the longest time in my adult life in New York City, where you go to buy a bagel and you end up in a half an hour conversation about Algeria. And, um, and I enjoy those interactions. I so. love the two, um, the two people that you cite, the checkout at Tesco's and the delivery person is about the only two people we've been in touch with in COVID. <laughs> I know. Um, we ourselves have a bit of an unexpected connection because we bumped into each other in Yemen a dozen or so years ago. I was trying to figure out when that might have been. Yeah. I was in, um, for the Financial Times, you had been working at the Yemen Observer and your time there at the paper, in fact, inspired your first book. And we met at your then boyfriend's home, who happened to be the British ambassador to Yemen. Um, yeah. I remember a taxi dropping me off, particularly close to the residence. And I was meandering around checkpoints to reach the gates and eventually got in. And Tim offered me a G&T, obviously. Yes. It'd feel like yeah. something from the pages of a book rather than real life, but that was real life for you. And, and then your next book, The Ambassador's Wife, clues in the title, is also informed by some of your personal experiences. So is it that the material of your real life is just too good not to harvest? <laughs> or, or maybe it's more literary than that, Jennifer, and it's just the joy of weaving together actual memories with imagination. Well, I think that's changed over time, to be honest. So my first book, The Woman Who Fell From the Sky, came from my experience as editor-in-chief of the Yemen Observer. And that experience was too interesting for me not to write about. And so I had never wanted to write nonfiction. I had always, even though I'd been a journalist for many years, I assumed that, I mean, I really wanted to write novels. And I just hadn't write, written a sellable novel yet. And then this, I stumbled upon this job and this story and my reporters, my Yemeni, all my staff were Yemeni and they were so incredible and I loved them. And I, I found it so fascinating what was happening with the paper. And then I made all kinds of horrific mistakes and humiliated myself in a million different ways. And I thought, you know, this is interesting and, and funny and, and tragic in all kinds of ways. And I, I, it, 
need to write about this. I mean, for most Americans, for example, assuming that my initial readership would be American since that's where I was born and where my agent happened to be, that um, they there's this preconception of, first of all, no one knows where Yemen is. And then there's this preconception that Yemenis are all terrorists. And, you know, people always asked me, well, what language do they speak there? Is that in Africa? And, you know, all these the people know nothing about Yemen. And I thought, maybe I can tell them my experience of Yemen, which is nothing like anything I've ever read in the media. You know, it's nothing. It's the opposite. <laughs> it's the friendliest country in which I have ever lived in my entire life. And I wanted people to know that. And I wanted them to know my Yemenis. And I think that was my driving force for the first book was I want people to know my Yemeni friends and reporters and this country. Um, so that was the first book. And the second book I, it started out from my experience being kidnapped while pregnant while I was hiking in mountains outside of Sanaa, but I didn't really want to, actually, that's not true. I, it's not that I didn't necessarily want to write an autobiographical book because suddenly my life became so interesting because it's interesting when you talk about, you know, this weird existence, um, the, the gin and tonics on the porch of the residence, um, it wasn't real life at first to me, it was the strangest thing that had ever happened to me. I, I lived alone for many, many, many years. I had never anticipated being married. It wasn't a particular goal of mine. And I, I was accustomed to living alone. I never had any money. So I certainly never had a cleaning person. And then suddenly I'm in this grand residence and I've never had so much gin in my life as I did the first year I was with Tim. Um, there was a lot of gin, you know, we had to, I mean, there's a lot of professional entertaining. And um, this was all a completely fascinating and strange world for me. I mean, it took a lot of adjusting, um, a lot. And of course, you also don't want to adjust too much because I personally feel that privilege ruins people. And if you're not on your guard all the time, you will be ruined. And so there's that kind of tug of war within you that whole time. And so I didn't, because a lot of what was happening in our house, given that a lot of our guests were uh, hostage negotiators, police from Scotland Yard, MPs from British Parliament, that I couldn't write about these in a memoir or any sort of nonfiction format. It, if Unless I wanted to end my husband's career and our relationship a bit prematurely. So I thought, well, all right, I have to write fiction now. And this, because I wanted to write about this weird diplomatic world and being thrust into, you know, that, that situation. And then I think after I'd been kidnapped, the foreign office had me write down what had happened to me. They said, write down your account as much detail as you can provide, because we need to understand what happened to you. And how that affects our security guidance for people in, in the country. And so I wrote up, I already had that written up. And then I thought, hey, kidnapping, that'd be a good beginning for a book. And then that initial scene, it begins with a kidnapping. So I'm not giving anything away. And that it begins with a kidnapping that happened pretty much like mine happened to me, except I was pregnant and my character is not pregnant, but she does have a toddler at home. And then I thought, what if I wasn't released? like I was in real life? What if I was kept for a while? And then what if, you know, she can't get back to her daughter for a very long time? And what if while she's kidnapped, she's handed a Yemeni baby who is starving to death? What then? You know, and so it was a kind of a series of what if questions. So nothing that happens in the rest of the book is autobiographical, but the context is a context I knew extremely well. And then Exile Music was a real departure because there is nothing in exile music 
that has anything to do with my own personal experience. Nothing. There's not even an English speaker in the book. It's, you know, it's a Viennese family who are musicians. I'm not a musician. They're Jewish. I'm not Jewish. They immigrated. They're forced to flee the Nazis from Vienna to Bolivia. Um, again, not my experience. They also were born, you know, in the 1920s and I was born in the 1960s. So it's, um, it took a great deal of research. The one common thing I'll pull out though, and, and Yemen is the same, is that you, know, you, you lived in La Paz when Tim, your husband, was EU ambassador there. And, and I wonder if it's that. Your, your own geographies and your movements are in your books. Is, is place then the muse? Is that what gets you going? It is, definitely. I, I mean, in Bolivia... Tim is always on the lookout too for stories for me. He keeps coming home from work and saying, oh, I heard this interesting thing. You should write a book about it. And he's often right. And I just can't keep up with his ideas. But he had a meeting with the honorary uh, Austrian consul in Bolivia in our early days there, probably in our first month in Bolivia. We were there for four years. Um, but this was in the beginning of our trip. And I was working on the, you know, the ambassador's wife and I had no interest in writing a new book yet. And Tim came home and said, did you know there were 20,000 Jewish refugees living here during World War II? And I hadn't known that. I'd, I'd read a lot about, you know, the Jewish diaspora in other parts of South America and about the Nazi diaspora as well in various parts of South America. But I hadn't realized there were so many refugees in La Paz and other parts of Bolivia. And I started thinking about how difficult it must have been to adapt to La Paz, given that living at that kind of altitude, you know, 3,000 to 4,000 meters is difficult enough for a lot of people. And then you throw in the fact that you've lost everyone you love, everything you own, all your money, your profession, um, your family and your culture. And suddenly you're in this place where you don't understand the culture or the language or and you're sick from the altitude and you can't get a job. Jennifer, was that some of the motivation to put this down then, was to tell this less well-known portion of Jewish history, which really hadn't had as much attention as some other migrations? And I know your story is made up of a fictitious little girl, but it still documents the truth about a journey of thousands of European Jews. Absolutely. There, I could not find another novel written about this part of the diaspora. I could find nothing in English about refugees living in La Paz during the war. I did find some really wonderful memoirs. There's a beautiful book called Hotel Bolivia by Leo Spitzer. Leo Spitzer's mother was pregnant with him when she fled Europe for Bolivia and he grew up there till he was 10. And I was able to both read his book and interview him about his experience growing up there. So he's the one who gave me some of the ideas for the games the children would play. And Miguel, or at least first, my main character's first friend, uh, her landlady's son collects pellies, which are these little scraps of film. And Leo's the one who told me about that. He used to do that. They used to sell those at the corner stores. And I, you know, I would never have come up with that except through that research. And I think, you know, initially I considered writing it as nonfiction because it's an important story that I feel has been overlooked. It's an entire part of the Jewish diaspora that's been completely overlooked. And I ultimately decided that because so many of the survivors are now dead and that those who were alive, and I did interview some of the survivors who were still alive and living in La Paz, 
they didn't necessarily remember things in enough detail for me to be able to write convincingly about their lives. And I thought often, at least for me as a reader, sometimes fiction can move me emotionally more than nonfiction and, and, and draw me to something that's based on a real story maybe. And, uh, but, but able to, you have more freedom to create a compelling narrative that will draw people in and affect their emotions than you have maybe writing nonfiction. I mean, there's of course, beautiful and emotional nonfiction. I just wasn't sure there would be enough material to do that. And so I thought, well, at least if I base it as much as possible on research. So I spent five years researching this book, um, in all different parts of the world. And I wanted to create a believable enough context that anyone who'd lived through it would read it and think, yes, that's what it was like. Um, but my characters, their story is completely fictional. They say the book in Vienna, Jennifer, and at one point we join Oli after fleeing Austria when she's waiting in Genoa for the boat to take her and, and other Jewish families away from Europe to safety. And you write from Oli's perspective this, I could almost convince myself we were on holiday as I wandered through the pretty streets listening to the strains of opera drifting out of the open door of a cafe. I could almost convince myself we were on holiday if I never looked at the faces of my parents. I wanted to ask you what have your experiences have been of these kind of in-between places where you waited out, where you have a bit of time, um, and where you have, say, the contradictions of, of the joy of travelling, but also the loneliness and the fear sometimes? That's uh, an important question. I feel in a way that my whole life is now lived in between, in between, my, in a state of in-betweenness. In-betweenness is my home. I, I, because we're always moving countries and we're always, I'm always an outsider. Of course, when we're here, Tim, my husband was actually born south of London. So, so he's not an outsider here, but when we're anywhere else, I'm not native to the country. And I also no longer feel particularly American, even though the U S is what shaped me growing up. And I feel that state of in-betweenness does force me to constantly ask myself what home is to me. What is the definition of home? It's something I've spent a lot of time writing about because our home is always these in-between places. And um, I once wrote an essay where I talked about my husband, every, everywhere we go, even if it's just a hotel room for one night, he arranges his toiletries in this specific constellation by the sink. And it's always the same, no matter where we are, you know, and his morning routine never, ever, ever varies no matter where we are. And so in a way that kind of unvaryingness of my husband's morning routine and the way he arranges his toiletries is a kind of, of home base. And I also, for me, I suppose, um, I've been for ever since I was pregnant, I suppose, a daily yoga practitioner. And I, during lockdown, took up daily ballet. So I do both of those every day. And, and I do those everywhere in hotel rooms, in various countries, in airports, wherever I happen to be. And for me, there's a home in those movements and in that space that I create for myself in the morning that allows me to feel like there's some sort of order to my life, that there's some place that's mine, that's 
a space that I take up in the morning and just returns me to myself in a way. And I mean, ultimately, I hope this doesn't sound too trite or sentimental, but I mean, my husband, Tim, and my daughter, Theo, are my home. And when I'm with them, then I'm home and the rest is details. I don't really mind where we are. It almost doesn't matter to me where I live or where I end up because everywhere has wonderful things about it and everywhere has enormous problems. I mean, and I saw in your acknowledgements, obviously very intentionally, right? Well, thanks to your husband in that way, which was to me, you are more home than man is what you wrote. And, and, and also the character Uli, as she's growing up, writes that about her, um, her love interest, Miguel. And, and so home sounds like to you too, it's, it's a more person than a place. I, is that a loss, not having a place to call home? It is and it isn't. I think sometimes I think I, I look at my nephew who's grown up in a town in Massachusetts for his entire life. And he has friends that he's known since he was a baby. He has friends who've known him his whole life. He's has a community, a, you know, he, these long relationships and my daughter has had to leave every single close friend she's ever made. And that's, that's really is starting to get difficult for her. Um, but for you? So, um, for me, yes. In fact, now more than ever, because I have had the privilege of being able to make friends all around the world. I have very close friends in Bolivia, in Yemen, in Austria, in France, in Norway, in Tanzania. And there are people who are hugely dear to me, some of my favorite people in the world, but I never get to see them. So it does get quite lonely. There's Sorry. a passage in the book um, that talks about that kind of ab- adaptation. It's, it's when all these families are trying to build this new life in Bolivia. And you talk about the cooking. Most of us grasp, so this is Ollie's voice. Most of us grasped the familiar cooking Austrian and German food and speaking German. Many never became comfortable with Spanish. Many never considered Bolivia a permanent home, but merely a place to wait out the coming war. Not everyone adapted. I, that line stuck with me because I wanted to know if you felt, you know, as someone who's moved around, if you adapt well, do you adapt? quickly do you adapt slowly um and are you as good at it now as you have been um I do adapt pretty quickly I I've never been a person who gets homesick I left home around the age of 15 and I I never experienced homesick of any homesickness of any kind you know when I went when I went away to summer camp when I was small and never what you know, I, I never called home and my parents finally called the camp and were like, is our daughter all right? Um, cause I was perfectly happy there. I, I really enjoy moving around and I really enjoy meeting new people. I get a lot of energy from that. And I find that a lot of my best moments are when I first moved to a country, when I first moved there and there's this kind of rush of energy and momentum and excitement. And you, I feel like you have to take advantage of that and record all your perceptions when you first get somewhere, because after a couple of years, um, that energy wears off and, um, but I do tend to adapt pretty quickly. I think, you know, I spent four years studying Arabic in Yemen. I spent four years studying Spanish in Bolivia and, but in Uzbekistan, I wasn't able to start studying Russian until I got there because 
I had been working too much in London <laughs> to be able to study Russian. Um, and Russian is really tough and I've had to, I've been moving around too much to keep up with it. And I feel that the fact that I've been unable to learn Russian has really kept me from adapting as in the ways that I would like to because I can't make friends with Uzbeks as easily um, without a, a language. And I, I feel helpless and more dependent on other people than I would like to be. And also it just feels disrespectful not to speak either Uzbek or Tajik or Russian or any of the languages they all speak. I was really intrigued in The Woman Who Fell From The Sky. Um, in your memoir, there is this, these few lines about people on the street greeting you with, welcome to Yemen, and how that irritated you. Because locals assumed you just arrived in town or part right. of the crew. And you wrote that you wanted to say back, I live here. I've been here <laughs> forever. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you what it was about their assumption that annoyed you so much. Uh, that's a good question. It didn't annoy me at first. It didn't annoy me for the first uh, two years. Uh, I was delighted to be welcome to Yemen. And I mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say just that. They'd say, welcome to Yemen. I love you. You probably experienced this when you were in Yemen. They just, they love you. And they want to tell you they love you immediately. And it's the most kind of immediate love and, that I've ever experienced. Um, and so I did, I loved it for a while. And, it, and it, it, um, it's just, once I've been there for four years and people were still welcoming me, I, I, maybe it just annoyed me because I wanted to feel like I, I was at home there and they were reminding me that I was a foreigner and outside of their world and outside of their experience, which I was, you know, I was not Yemeni. I was outside of their experience. I was not part of their world. But it felt um, like home. It felt like home. It did. I mean, I had a home, you know, before I met Tim, you know, I lived alone in the old city of Sanaa in the most beautiful home I will ever live in because the old city of Sanaa, in my opinion, is the most beautiful city I've ever experienced my entire life. And my house there was amazing. And I ended up taking in a lot of stray humans who didn't have places to live. And so I was kind of running an unofficial hostel. <laughs> and that was really fun too. And I, I felt very at home there. My neighbors who didn't know me would, would knock on my door and invite me over for Eid or just insist that I come over for tea and play me all their cassette tapes. And People, Yemenis just adopt you. And once a Yemeni adopts you, they are your friend forever till the end of time. I am in regular touch with all of my Yemeni friends because they are loyal. I've never met any people so committed to friendship <laughs> and loyalty. So in fact, I mean, it sounds like there have been many homes rather than home is where my family is. There's actually also been many real tangible physical homes. That's true. There are many physical homes in which I feel at home for, I mean, and I probably felt more at home in Yemen than I did in Bolivia. And I think the reason for that is I moved to Yemen as a single person for work. And I lived there alone for a year before I met Tim. And by then I already had a huge community of Yemeni friends and I was, I knew my way around and I had, I, I had a social structure. Whereas when we moved to Bolivia, I moved there as Tim's wife. And that is a completely different thing because ambassadors' wives are, there's expectations that they behave in a certain way. And also once you're an ambassador's wife, you get the feeling no one's ever gonna tell you the truth about anything ever again. Um, you know, you never are sure if people like you or they just like the fact that you're married to an ambassador. I wanted to, to bring up 
something else in your book, um, Exile Music. And it is when Orly gets into a discussion with Miguel, this new friend in Bolivia, who's explaining to her why some Bolivians are challenged by the arrival of so many refugees, the taking our jobs line. And Orly says to her friend, did my father take someone's job? And he says, no. And then she says, did my mother? And he says, I don't think that, Orly, I promise. And she continues, but if other people do, you don't understand, this is how it starts. And Miguel replies, it's true that people don't have jobs. They're just worried, that's all. Most of us don't have jobs either. But it's not in your country, Miguel says. And then you write from Orly's perspective, for a moment I forgot how to inhale. I stared at the floor, willing myself not to cry. I wanted to protest. Where else did we have? But it was true. And then her response to Miguel was, I guess nowhere is. I, and I have asked you about home, but I wanted you to unpackage also about the country you feel is yours. Like, or maybe like Orly, you don't feel like you have one now with all the movement, but you, as you said, were raised and shaped by the US. Yeah, that's true. I think, you know, in writing that about Orly, I mean, a lot of what I wanted to write about her experience was at what point did she, I mean, she had to make a decision at some point. Was she Austrian? Was she Bolivian? Was she something else? Was there anything else? Or did she have to pick one of those two? And, um, and how she would think through that because like me, she's an outsider and she's never going to be completely Bolivian, even though she comes to think of herself in that way. Um, and I think for me, I feel that since I left the U S I feel that my years in Yemen in particular forced me to confront the assumptions I had about the world and the fact that they were not shared by a lot of other people in a lot of other countries and that maybe some of them are wrong. And maybe, you know, and, and I started to realize the certain, um, the ways in which I'd just been almost blinded by where I had grown up and living so far away in someplace so different allowed me to get a perspective on my own country and the way other people experience my country from abroad was really interesting to me. And I feel, you know, as we talked about earlier, like the, the first book was autobiographical. And since then I've moved away from that. And I think, you know, living, I think growing as a writer for me has meant moving away from my own experience in that, I'm no longer very interested at all in my own experience. I'm much more interested in finding stories like Orly's that, that haven't been told and that deserve telling and that fascinate me and interest me. And I'm pretty uninterested in writing any more memoir or anything about myself. And at the same time, I feel that I've become less and less, I mean, I, I can't get away from the fact that America shaped me, but I, at the moment, feel like I have very little in common with most, maybe not most people, but I have very little in common with at least half the country. And I feel like the U.S. is insane at this moment. There's so much about it I completely do not understand. I'm, and I feel that I, I don't even want to visit the U.S. anymore. Um, it just feels scary to me. It feels like a frightening place. And I don't, so that makes me not want to, to claim it. But at the same time, whenever I think about my friends that live there, I want to see them. I want to visit them. I want to go back to New York City, which I thought of as home in the U.S. 
So I will still sometimes describe myself as a New Yorker because I feel that New York is a city, the one city in the world where I get off the airplane and I think, these are my people. Everyone's walking my speed. You know, there's people from every country in the world around me. This is where I belong. Um, so part of me still does believe I'm in New York, that I belong in New York, and that there, I'm, I'm not an outsider when I go to New York. That is a place where I feel like I, I know it like the back of my hand. I, sorry, that was cliche, but, you know, I know it very well. And um, so... So in that way, I guess I still am. I mean, I can't get away from, you know, I'm, I'm always at conflict with myself. I, there's a, I suppose that little civil war in me reflects the civil war that seems to be going on in my country. And But there was an admission there of like, I belong in New York. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's always a kind of, I feel I live in a permanent state of nostalgia. There's always somewhere I want to be or someone I want to be with. And they're never the people I'm with. Well, that's not true all the time. I mean, but it's true a lot of the time. So I get that. Um, Finally, Jennifer, what's next? Can you tell me about the next book, Um, fictional memoir? You've just said probably fiction. And but where will it be? Is this going to be in Isbeck? Yes and no, or no and yes. So the, there's, a, there's a completed novel I've finished recently that is set in Bolivia. It's in the second Bolivia. I seem to do two novels per country um, thus far. Um, so this is a, it's a Bolivia book, but it's based on a community of LGBTQ people who have been forced to live in caves underneath the city because they've been expelled by their families and threatened by their own relatives and most of them have been abused in one way or another and that novel was inspired by I met a Bolivian documentary filmmaker while I was living in La Paz and she was interviewing these people and it was only years later when I started a PhD in creative writing and I needed a new idea for a book fast and I thought oh that must be interesting what's that like and I started thinking about what would it look like if the underworld were female. If I, a lot of the books about the underworld, whether physical or metaphorical are male, they're revolutionaries fighting with guns. They're, I don't know, Jack Kerouac or, and his buddies. It's, it's very male. A lot of the underground books, a lot of the underground literature is very male. And I wanted to see if I could find a way to regender the underworld while also imagining a queer underworld. And while also imagining how people might try to protest without guns. Um, and so that's that book, which is finished and uh, not yet sent out to publishers, but we will, I hope that will happen soon. Um, and then I'm about halfway through an Uzbekistan book that is about, also based on um, a real historical, it's a more of a historical novel. The Bolivian one's contemporary. And this one goes back into historical novel land and is much more in the tone of exile music um, in terms of the writing, whereas the underground one is super fast and snappy and mostly dialogue and much shorter than anything I've ever written. So completely different in style. And in a way, the Uzbek book is a return to the style of exile music, but it's a completely different world. And it's a lot to do with both art and also the devastation of the disaster of the disappearance of the Aral Sea. So it combines kind of environmental concerns with um, the forbidden art of the Soviet era. And maybe that's enough to say about that one, because I'm just still in the midst of it. But I, 
I'm in London at the moment and I really do need to get back to Uzbekistan to finish researching this book. So hoping that happens in the next few months, but we'll see. I'm going to end, Jennifer, um, with your epigraph. For all who live far from home and in between. Jennifer Style, thank you for joining me at the Wondering Book Collector. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie and Kent. Goodbye.